This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Eric Shawquin. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric, and we just crack each other up. (laughs) We just think we're so funny. We think we're just the best. (laughs) I don't know what you're laughing at right now, though. It was the idea of that in the first place. Oh, yeah. I was clearing my throat and then said something about spitting out my chaw. Like, I referenced, I'm not even sure if they make that product. I'm not even going to say the name of that product I hope they don't make that product. I hope they don't make it anymore, but it was a, I guess, racist named Mm -hmm. um, chewing tobacco that Mm -hmm. used to be very popular. And it may still be. I, I have no idea. I can't imagine that... Chewing tobacco is popular among the most socially <laughs> progressive people, but but maybe I have no idea. Nothing against you. You do you. <laughs> if you need a if you need a little, bi- I saw it happen in your eyes. You're like, has anyone on our Facebook page ever mentioned chewing tobacco? You need to put if you need to put a little bit between your cheek and gum. You go right ahead. Yes, yes, indeed. But, but um, yes. what nothing I could imagine you doing less than dip. I can't really imagine. I even no. snuff like none of it. Well, snuff just cocaine. Like, what I was think snuff? snuff was like powdered tobacco. I have no idea. Okay. If anyone out there knows what snuff is, I'm not even looking it up. I don't care. It was it seemed pretty, but yeah, that. I think it was sniffing tobacco. Okay, I think it was still tobacco, right. a tobacco product, but I don't know. Right. Um, occasionally on the dinner party show's Facebook page, we have people have a strong reaction to things you and I don't understand, and I think it's, spe- it's specifically things that we will not look up. It's things we continue to not understand on subsequent episodes. And one of those things is what is it called? It's come up in multiple true crime. Uh, documentaries we've talked about an Alfred plea or an, an Alfred an Alfred plea and we had a commenter say recently once again Christopher and Eric are not understanding what an Alfred plea is and I'm like we understand what it is I think superficially it is you plead guilty without pleading guilty which is ironic and contradictory and doesn't make any sense and that's what we're having trouble understanding right it's like how is that a thing right <laughs> I'm guilty, except I'm not. I'm not guilty. I just want you all to leave me alone. Well, I think it's about, I think it has to do, and again, you know, call us down for this, but I think it has to do with 
owning it. Yeah. With the full confession, you allocute, you you give the whole, you you confess. It is not simply pleading guilty. You actually tell people what you did. I think that's a part of taking an Alford plea. I think it's the part you don't do, right? That's what you don't, you say, okay, if you want to say I'm guilty, that's fine. I won't contest your judgment of my guilt, but I'm not going to confess to the specifics of the crime. Now we're finally looking it up. But look at what I've done to us. I've actually forced it's us actually to look this had, up. Also called the Kennedy plea in West Virginia, an oh. Alford plea and the Alford doctrine is a guilty plea in criminal court whereby a defendant in a criminal case does not admit yeah. to the criminal act and asserts innocence, even if the evidence presented by the prosecution would be likely to persuade a judge or a jury to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. This can be caused by circumstantial evidence and testimony favoring the prosecution and difficulty finding evidence and witnesses that would aid the defense. Alford pleas are legally permissible in nearly all U.S. federal and state courts, except in the state courts of Indiana, Michigan, and New Jersey, because everybody's guilty in New Jersey. <laughs> Or in the courts of the United States Armed Forces. Except for our, our lovely web managers and designers at Unreal Pro, who are actually based in New Jersey, Eric. So yeah. we want to we want to accept. They them just from haven't that. got caught yet. <laughs> you know I what? am always astonished by the level of crime in New Jersey. I would think it seems like a lovely place. Like, what is up with? Do you remember, like a couple of years ago, there was like this huge bus that included rabbis and appliance salesmen and it was like all the other was like oh my god like what is going on in New Jersey I don't every know. all of the state legislature everybody who's ever been elected to office their their current serving US senator like he may be guilt, uh, innocent but like so what was with the gold bullion? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> really? Like, that was just a nice little sort of Christmas thank you they from the They sell it the at Turkish the farmer's government? market. They have it at the farmer's market. Okay, here's my theory. Yes. My theory is that the people who do really well in organized crime in New York City want to have a house in the suburbs, and that's New Jersey. The Garden State. I don't know why they didn't go to Connecticut. Maybe plenty of them are in Connecticut. We just don't know about it. They're, they're just harder to catch yeah. or whatever. Or maybe the, maybe the prosecution's better in New Jersey. I have no idea. But the level of ongoing, you'll just be going along and, and that, there'll be another case of, well, everyone in the House of Representatives in New Jersey was arrested today on bribery and extortion charges. And it's like, what? You know, I have to say, though, we've done almost over 200 true crime TV clubs here at Christopher and Eric. I think we have only done one story in New Jersey. We don't do the mob. We're not that into the mob. I don't, I'm yeah. not a gangster person. I, yeah. I'm not a big fan of that. And just to be fair, yes. and while we're on the topic, <laughs> the only place worse than New Jersey is New York. <laughs> like, oh my God, the House of Representatives, the Speaker of the House, everybody yeah. has been, the governor had to resign. Like, mm -hmm. like no, 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 yeah. no. New York does not get a, a walk on this. No. Everybody bad from New York goes to New Jersey. Oh, no. Well, it was like we always said, as good Louisiana boys, the only reason Mississippi and Alabama exist is to make us feel better about ourselves Absolutely. as a state. I'm going to jump the shark on this because I think this is coming up in our next— from the, Vote for the crook, not the thief. What was it? Vote the, for the crook, not the Klansman. Oh, yeah. that was that. 
Okay, so I'm going to jump the shark on this because there is a line coming up in our next batch of episodes. This is winter uh, crime time. Wintertime crime. Wintertime crime. Eric is always our director of branding here Except at Except neither of us can ever remember what I said in that conversation we had a week ago about what we're going to do. There is a line coming up where somebody says he had an extensive criminal record in Florida and New Jersey. And I'm like, you're just fucking guilty. Whatever they think you did, you're guilty. If those two states are where your criminal record is, yeah, you're that's, fucking gonna criminal. Yeah, that's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. <laughs> so when we, I can't remember where it is or which episode it's going to be in. And if you threw in Louisiana, it would be like, and you probably, yeah, it's probably like maybe a war crime. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Louisiana, I swear to God. God love them. I love Louisiana, we but love it is Louisiana. the only foreign country in the United States. Like yeah. the, the stuff that goes on there. Like I can remember from, like it's like the thing we were kidding about vote for the, the crook, mm. not the Klansman. That was an actual campaign slogan in the state. That wasn't like a joke. No, it wasn't. It happened. It was, I think, the first gubernatorial election after I moved there in the 80s. It was the candidates for governor were Edwin Edwards, who had already served extensive prison time for corruption, or David Duke, who was a former grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Literally. Not not rumored. Not like he'd been at the wrong party. No, that was one of his campaign. Uh, yeah. That was a that was a feature, not a bug. That was, he was campaigning on that. Like, it was... It's, yeah, it's one of those unique places where, like, okay. Mm -hmm. And I remember somebody in the paper saying, I'm going to vote for David Duke because I think Edwin Edwards could ostensibly corrupt the state or bankrupt the state, but I don't think David Duke could make the state racist. To which people kind of wanted to say, if David Duke is a front runner for the governor's mansion, the state might already be a little that, racist. That, yeah, that ship may already yeah. have sailed, girl. It was. Oh, it was a. It was a. It was yeah. a thing. It was a thing. It was a thing. But we out here in California, we don't have those problems. Everything's going great. It really is. It actually is going pretty good. Despite all those people who like, and if you're feeling terrible about California and you want to move to another state, great. <laughs> The traffic See here. Ya. The traffic here is terrible. terrible. So please go. Please go. If you think it's going to be so much better somewhere else, you go right ahead. We applaud you. We will come to your going away party and bring a nice gift. Just go. Well, it's crowded. I keep having it's so great here. I keep having these conversations with people in other states where they're like, "What are you doing about the exodus of people?" It's like, "What exodus of people?" Dancing at the border. <laughs> Waving them through, like go right ahead, bye bye. We have this is the most populous state in the country. It is packed. Like yeah. we are not mourning over people who are like I don't want to have to pay my taxes. I just want everything for free. Well then, fine. Yeah, go somewhere where you don't get electricity in the winter time, <laughs> but you don't have to pay any taxes. <laughs> All right, that's a perfect segue into winter time right? crimes. Yes. Yeah, so the first, okay, standard disclaimer. I don't think I've given our standard disclaimer in a long time. This is exciting. It's like going back home again. Um, <laughs> Christopher nerds out. I love rules. I'm going to take a nap. Uh, you take a game. nap. Uh, the True Crime TV Club works thusly. Uh, see, I'm adding new words because I've had time to sort of step back and reassess. Anyway. Um, you do not have to watch this hour of television. Our goal is to serve it up for Particularly you. Particularly not now because you're listening to a podcast and that would just really be- <laughs> Please don't. Very confusing. You, we are going to serve it up for you in such steaming, salacious detail, you'll feel like you watched it with two of the biggest bitches you have ever met. Let's not oversell our-, our <laughs> I don't want people disappointed in the way we serve it up. But. Well, if we serve up the details that are there to be served up, and then Eric gives his real theory of the And then the case. I break out my blowtorch. Yeah, absolutely. I smell a rat, and I'm going to roast it. 
All right, so today's episode is an hour of a show called Dead of Winter. The episode is entitled The Killing Field. It is season two, episode five. I believe it is available on Discovery Plus here in the United States. We have a lot of listeners who are not from the United States, and we love them, particularly Australia. We seem to get a lot of listeners from Australia, so. Insomniacs from Australia who <laughs> cannot get to sleep any other way put on this show, and they're out like a light. <laughs> You're about getting people out of bed. Maybe I, they turn you on to get out of maybe bed. Maybe so. Maybe it's a wake up thing. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like it's the day before there or something. I don't know. It's going back in time. I'm yeah. not sure. Okay. So but we're welcome. We welcome anyone. You're we all welcome, welcome here. Anyone. We're, you're welcome at this table. And if you move out of California, keep listening to our podcast. Please do. Please do. We're delighted to have you listen in. And if you're not happy here, we totally understand and we appreciate you leaving. Absolutely. All right. Dead of winter, the killing field, 2003. We're headed to Douglas County, Colorado, which I think I put together in the long arc of this special includes Aurora, Colorado, which is where that terrible movie theater shooting was many years ago. I just assume everybody's killing everybody in Colorado all the time. <laughs> I think it must be the altitude. I don't know what's going on there, but, like, my God. Wait a minute. Why is this? What because is it? all of those mass shootings and all of the— It's yeah. like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. are there that many people in Colorado even? Yeah. Like, I just, like, my goodness, what a high level of— I just, I think it must be the altitude. There was a period there in the 90s between the Jean Benet Ramsey murder, which was in Boulder, and the, the first real mass school shooting I can remember, which was Columbine, also in Colorado. People were asking this question what the fuck is going on in Colorado? And it just keeps happening, and you yeah. just think, oh my God, what's happening? I think it's the altitude. Okay, well, it's 2003, so we're in Douglas County, Colorado. Um, we're introduced to a woman who is real, and there will be non real people throughout because there are reencraptacular reenactments in this one. Trigger I'm warning. I'm, I'm afraid so. Uh, this is an interview subject. She is in her living room. Her name is Dana Cerniglia. A date on the screen tells us it's February 5th, 2003, uh, that she is describing for us. This interview is taking place much later. She said that year it was a brutal winter. They had 6 to 12-inch snow days. And then, oh, God, as I wrote in my notes, scripted reenactments begin almost immediately. We meet her stepson, Sean, who, uh, according to the actor's performance, and we know how misleading these can be when it comes to the facts of the case, and that these specials often use these reenactments to write their own version of the story. Yes. Um, Sean was Dana's stepson. Uh, Dana was married to Dwayne, uh, Sean's father. Sean is depicted as being comical and quick-witted. He's dating a young woman named Carrie Lynn Hyden, who is depicted as being sweet. Dana tells us that the two cared very much for each other. The night in I'm sorry, they carried very much. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm trying to get through my boring notes here. They carried each other. It's part of their relationship. Carried. They carried. It's the Middle English version of cared. <laughs> my I, lord, I carried very deeply for I carried you. Carried very deeply. That's Douglas County English. It's very yes. Yeah. It's very um, low oxygen. They have a local dialect there. Okay. Um, the night in question, and you know that's never a good sign in these specials when they say the night in question, because it means bad shit is about to happen. She made meatloaf, which he hated. Which she's regretted ever since. If only she hadn't made terrible meatloaf, right. none of this would have happened. They make a joke about his having to attend a party at a fast food restaurant because he didn't get the meatloaf, all of which is scripted in this scene, which I don't trust and don't think is real. 
Then she tells them goodbye, and it's the last time she ever saw him. She wakes up around 5.15 a.m. the next morning to get ready for work, and Sean's car isn't there. She's initially annoyed because she wanted him to at least call and let her know where they went off to, so she calls Carrie's mother, Cinda Wilson, who was also interviewed. And Eric is shaking his head and rolling his eyes because, as we will learn, Cinda had a lot to say. A lot of opinions. A lot of opinions. A lot of opinions. I guess she gets to be upset because, you know, this is a terrible tragedy, but that was not how she approached it. It was... It was a unique approach to a personal tragedy. Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So we are interviewing Cinda Wilson, who is the mother of Carrie, and it's now becoming clear that Sean and Carrie are both missing. They have not checked in with their parents. They have not returned home after going out. We're not really sure where. They didn't say. On meatloaf avoidance. Right. And we're interviewing Cinda, and Eric is shaking his head because Cinda is going to serve up a lot of opinions about and what attitude. might have happened. Oh my God, so much attitude. Like, I guess everybody deals with grief in her own way and Senda decided to be a bitch about it, I guess. They both call the sheriff's department and file a report, both mothers. The cops grill them and say, if you can't find teenagers, it's because they don't want to be found. I just love that attitude from from police. Like, that's what the John Wayne Gacy cops said, too. And that was not also true there. And it was the same thing they said about that guy whose yeah. name I can never remember from Texas, all of his teenage victims. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's actually really a terrible theory and not really always or even mostly true. Also, it is uttered in a reenactment, isn't it? Like, it's another thing that an actor tells us. I'm like, did they really say this, or did the well, it's mothers... the thing the parents say that the yeah. police told them. So it's, you know, grain of salt there, but I have to say... Yeah. 
I, because you hear it so consistently from people who are yeah. trying to report missing people and, you know, to raise the alarm early in the process, I have to say I feel like it's more likely true. Okay. And it may have more truth from – we don't need to ask law enforcement about it, but it, there may be more truth to it than, than I realize because I hope – that while we are looking at these things, they are a very small percentage right. of the, the actual missing teenagers in the world. But but it just seems like, what a response. Mm -hmm. like, mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not really buying that. Well, and it's also a little victim blaming. It's like, so you were a dick to your teenager and they ran out and now you're at trying to get us involved? Like, that's the tone that usually comes across. Yeah, and they ask, did you do drugs? Right. Did you have a fight? Is there the whole host of the, all the reasons Teenagers, that... teenagers are nightmares. What do you think? Absolutely. I'm legally obligated to look for them, okay? <laughs> that's the parents talking. <laughs> right, otherwise I would, you know, change the locks and... <laughs> Turn their room into a gym. <laughs> anyway, so, okay, this is the part, and I got to say, the cops do not come out looking great in this story. They do not. By 11.30 p.m., the fire department calls in to report that Sean's car has been found burned, badly burned, but nobody's inside of it. Sean's father— And, and the primary reason that they called— <laughs> is because they want to get rid of the car. Yeah. Could you come get this car? Like— He's supposed to go, what's he going to do with a burned car? He can't drive yeah. it home. And and he said, his father says, are you going to do an investigation? And they say, no, it's already been processed and we're releasing it to you. Like it's already been processed? Like, like what this is, is later that same day. Right. They found the kids are still missing. They found the burned out car and they're like, could you come get this car? That's their response. And I think what the parents are going to soon say is they say, if, if your story, the cops, is that they ran off. Why did they get rid of their car? You need a car to run away. If they had a car, yeah. they would keep using the car. Right. You would keep running in that. Yeah. Or did they hop a train and set fire to their car? Like, right. As they hopped into that. Like, These are not like high-level assassins who have not, backup cars this hidden is in the field. Not, yeah. None of this is coming together in the way that the authorities seem to be describing it. Okay. So inside, the dashboard is melted and some of their belongings are there. There's a camera that they think belongs to Sean, and it looks like one of those old sort of disposable cameras that you'd have to get the film developed. It's 2003 after And all. so they do. They show one of the photos, and it's Sean looking to one side, I guess behind the wheel of the car, and smiling. He looks happy enough. And that's it. That It's just everything stalls out. That's all the cops do. Every night, um, Dana keeps her window open, and with the sound of each passing car, she hopes it's them coming back. Then two weeks later, I don't know why it took two weeks, Detective Brian Murphy, the hero of the piece, played by an, a reenactor who, I, I'm just going to put it this way, he made the reenactments more bearable for me. He was, you know, he was actually pretty good, but he was also, he could investigate me anytime. Um, <laughs> so Detective Sergeant Douglas, uh, excuse me, Detective Brian Murphy is a detective sergeant from Douglas County. He gets the case file on these missing teenagers, and he says it's different than your typical runaway case because of the abandoned burnt car, which we just covered. So they start a search of the fields outside of town by air, and the searches turn up nothing. But it turns out, and here we go, Carrie's mother starts to have a lot to say. Senda has opinions. She was never comfortable with her daughter dating Sean. He played a lot of rap 
on his car stereo. Uh-huh. That, you know, that, that rap music. That rap music. And when he came to pick up Carrie, he wouldn't speak to her and seemed evasive. She's terrifying. I wouldn't <laughs> speak to her either, even if I was just, you know, coming by for tea. Like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Whatever you say, Miss Wilson. Earl Grey. Yes, thank you. Thank One you. One sugar. Um, she tells the detectives that if someone hurt the two of them, it was because of Sean's choices, not Carrie's. Which is quite a thing to Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Yeah. If it had been Carrie, they would have covered them in frosting and brought them home in a, mm-hmm. ma- in a marzipan bed. Yeah. So b- a lot of alliance between the two mothers there, obviously. They don't ever go to Dana to get her reaction to Carrie talking shit about her son. Um, but I'm and sure she did have Dana a reaction. Dana doesn't have much to say about Carrie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She never really talks about anything but Sean. Her stepson. D- to whom she was quite devoted. Apparently. Yeah. Okay, it turns out the fire department did collect evidence from the burned-out car. What a surprise. They did say they processed it. They weren't lying. It's untouched, but it's been booked in. The arson investigator found a cigarette butt on the floor of the car that possibly started the fire. Like they even found a cause of the fire. Then there's a business card for a detective who works for Detective Murphy. On and, the floor of the car. And in response to these two pieces of evidence, they did... The detectives... Nothing. <laughs> nothing. They found a business card from a police officer in the burnt-out car and didn't even call the police officer yeah. on the card. And they found a cigarette butt, which ultimately, you know, is something you could test for DNA or something that they think started the, mm-hmm. the fire, and they just didn't do anything. Detective Murphy, Murphy finds them in the box of collected evidence yeah. from when they processed the car. And it's like, and the kids were already reported missing at this point. I, just, I know. It's one I of know. those, like, what was happening? Yeah. So uh, the detective goes to track down the detectives whose card it was in the car. <laughs> and she says, oh, him? Yeah. I was questioning him in relation to a shooting. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> Now, in all fairness, nobody died in the shooting. I guess in this town, in Douglas County, you got to die in a shooting for anyone to investigate. Apparently not. (laughs) Because the two missing teenagers, we can't convince anybody to investigate them. So here's what happened. This was the shooting that Sean was in, in a car and present for, but allegedly did not fire the gun. It happened in a rich neighborhood on the other side of town. Somebody rolled up to a house that was crowded with partygoers, teenagers, and fired two rounds from a shotgun through the front window. And I'd like to point out that my experience of shotguns is that's not a discreet thing. That's no. a pretty big... No. That's like firing a cannon through the window of a crowded party that, that nobody was hit? Like, yeah. how big was this house? Well, maybe they had really bad aim. I don't know. But that's the point of shotguns. You really don't have to aim. It just sprays. It's like shrapnel. It's, this has been the episode where Eric Shawquin teaches us about chewing tobacco and shotguns. I'm, you know, I am from Natchitoches, Louisiana. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, it's I've I'm not completely alien to that part of the world. And yeah, shotguns are filled with shot. Yeah. And it explodes. Like, it'll blow a hole in something. It doesn't just like a bullet goes. Straight through, like a rifle mm-hmm. would have a bullet in it, and you would 
But the, if they fired a shotgun in that window, that would have blown the window out of the front of the house. I, we have enough experience with these hours of television to recognize the coded language that's being used when they just cut off an entire arm of the story because they didn't have time for it. And this shooting was one of the. Was oh, like, yeah. What the fuck really happened at that house? How many moves did it have? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really it. <laughs> and that's kind of all the information we ever really get about firing two shotgun blasts through a window at a party at a crowded house. I just... Let's not test that here at the studio. We don't want to do that. I am in favor of you trying dip just for like 30 seconds just to see what happens. That is never going to happen. Well, it's a video thing if we do it. We're going to have to have video. Yeah, I'm also not going to put a whole tablespoon of cinnamon in my mouth <laughs> or eat a Tide Pod. So, no. <laughs> You're so mature and sophisticated. I really am. That's All me. Right. All right. Back to that. Enough with the Tom Fool. Meanwhile, back at the crowded Christmas party... Uh, so, so, yeah, so there was a shooting. So there was a shooting, yeah. But they still didn't call the detective. Like, every time they follow any clue in the case, it leads them immediately to this major new development, and yet... Sean is refusing to give any info to the cops about the shooting, however, but the detective who whose card it was says it was clear he knew something. Mm -hmm. Um it's not clear if she did anything when he went missing or like she's been up to anything in the I don't know years. how she would have known. It was just yeah. top secret at the at the, um, police department. the police department. Nobody, the, the guy found it in a case file on his desk. Dana walks away from her career to make finding the kids her full-time job. I love that explanation. She went to see a psychic <laughs> who told her she thought the kids would be found near an, a white abandoned house. Because that, and it's a promising career. Yeah. She describes it as such. Like, she was looking for a reason to excuse and when her, to quit, and when her um, deadbeat stepson went missing, it became her full-time job, and she went to a psychic. And the psychic said, there's this house and whatever. And so we spend a lot of time on a reenactment that involves them searching this house where they don't find anything except a dead squirrel. They're with a cadaver dog. And yeah. there's a dead squirrel. Yeah, that's it. There's actually, I mean, maybe they bought a stuffed squirrel and put it, put it on the floor in the basement. But yeah. in the reenactment, there's actually at least the semblance of a dead squirrel on the floor. I think after the strike, you now have to use a real squirrel. I think the union says you have to use real squirrels. <laughs> no CGI squirrels. No CGI squirrels. Okay. Um, then the sheriff's office gets a call about the missing teens from, uh-oh, a jailhouse informant. Always helpful. He says the kids are dead and they were killed by a man named Nat York. The Yorks are from a fairly affluent area, and it turns out Nat York is on the list of suspects for what they're now calling the Sixth Street Shooting, which was the rich neighborhood shooting we talked about earlier. The two shotgun blasts through the front window of the Christmas party. They go to Nat's house, and he immediately says, my attorney will contact you in 24 hours. So Nat has experience with the law. That's what we learn right off. Nat has money. <laughs> it's now May 6th, 2003. A call, another call comes Which into the sheriff's office. Which is not very long after the, to be fair. February to May, right? Yeah. Okay, February, March. So we, this, the crime actually happened. Yeah, once we'll... Detective Murphy got involved, it's those first two weeks of just putting off these parents and yeah. not doing anything, and there's a burned car, and you're not acting like homicide is a possibility. <laughs> With like, a detective's card in it, yeah. who you don't call, yeah. Mm. Okay, a call comes into the sheriff's office from a farmer... Two decomposing human bodies have been found on his property. They were revealed by the snowmelt. It's Carrie and it's Sean. Carrie has one gunshot wound to the head. Sean also has one. 
So the cops go after Nat York's friends to try to find out what the deal is and what he's hiding. The friends are all suburban white kids trying to be something they weren't. Wannabe gangsters is the word one detective uses. But eventually they zero in on a young lady named Catherine Farnkoff, and this is Nat's girlfriend. And the reenactress who plays her is very nervous. The detective is trying to get some emotion out of her, so he slowly creeps his chair. We This is going to come up, I think. I think this comes up again on a later episode we're doing. This invading a suspect's personal space is a way to get them to tell the truth. Or maybe it was on some mystery series I watched the other night. I'd never heard that before, that if you get in someone's physical space, it is harder for them to lie to you. I would think it would be easier because I would want you out of my physical space. Like, yes, whatever you want. Yeah, totally. No, yeah, yeah. But uh, apparently not. Apparently it's a technique. I, you know, I think apparently this guy said it was a technique. <laughs> I'm going to go with that. Because, like, yeah, I guess that's a thing. Like, intimidating the, a witness is also a thing, but not something that people, you know, beating them with a phone book is also a thing. But right. maybe not your best choice. No. I, it's like, mm, yeah, I guess so. But duress is not actually <laughs> considered yeah. to be, like, usually my understanding is developing a po- more positive and friendlier mm-hmm relationship with the person that you're interrogating is the most effective way to get them to talk to you. Right. That and time and exhaustion. Yes. If they can keep you in that room as long as they possibly can before you ask for a lawyer, they will. And they will try to wear you down so that your story becomes inconsistent. And you were saying, you know, you're not, you start to lose your hold on your own story. They all say, the detectives and all these specials say, the truth doesn't require a lot of rehearsal. That's not how they say it, but the truth doesn't require a lot of effort because it's you don't the truth. have to remember the truth. Right, exactly. You just tell the truth. If you're try, if you're remembering a story that you made up, that you have to remember. That's harder to do. So eventually, Nat's girlfriend Catherine breaks down and says, "This wasn't just about Nat. It was about someone named Caleb, and we have never heard of Caleb before." <laughs> Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So enter Caleb Burns, a new player in the story. He is, and this is the, we do a lot of small town crime shows on the on this podcast. This is the buzzword. He is not from the area. Whenever they say about that, <laughs> say that about somebody, get ready. That's a red flag over their heads. Not from the area. 
He is not from the area and feared by everyone. So he's sort of like Bigfoot. Well, like, and kind of contradictory. Well, it sounds like he spends a lot of time in the area. <laughs> if he's feared by everyone, they have to have met him. So does he just visit a lot or does yeah. his grandmother live there? What's going on with Caleb? And the answer is, we're not going to tell you anything about <laughs> Caleb because this is a crime show where Caleb is instrumental. So why would we tell you about him? <laughs> All we know is that he and Nat became close friends, and they started carrying out a reign of terror. Those are the words used by the special, um, which included shooting through the windows of this house where all these kids were partying because they wanted to send a message that they were not to be messed with. And apparently Sean was in the backseat of their car when they did it. So... I guess not to be... Did they even go into, like, who they were mad at? Somebody had talked shit about them? There was no explanation at all. There was more to this story. We well, need a more to this story sound effect. I actually think... You're just well, going to say they're they're all gay. That's what you all. No, I'm say. not going to say that at all. <laughs> all I, these boys are gay. They're gay like maybe. us. We're gay. They're gay. They Everyone's gay. That doesn't seem to have factored in. They might have been. I, I don't know. There's no evidence presented one way or the other. But Caleb and Nat were close. I guess you could, you know, draw well, your own the, conclusion. These diseased relationships, these toxic relationships, sometimes do have a kind of... I think whatever. there is a narrative present in okay, this story, well, which we will talk it. about when we get to the end Ye of the story. Story. Eric's narrative. That's why we all tune in. Well, it's actually their narrative. Oh, okay. Um, take the win, Eric. I was talking up. Okay, so we don't have much left in this show, but we have a lot left in our podcast, so I'm going to get through it so we can get to the narrative that Eric wants to focus on because that will be more interesting than all of this. Two things. Two things. Okay. So we're talking about Caleb Burns. Uh, they shot through the windows together. Sean was in the backseat of the car. And then it turned out Nat heard a rumor that Sean was talking to the police. Caleb planned to lure Sean to his apartment. And that was the, the detective says that was the night of his disappearance. And the fast food restaurant was a cover story. Catherine is at the apartment. She's Nat's girlfriend who the police have been getting all this out of. When Sean and Carrie come over... They think he's ratting on them. Nat and Caleb do. So they begin to beat the tar out of Sean in front of Catherine, who does nothing. They then bind both Sean and Carrie in duct tape and put pillowcases over their heads. Nat and Caleb give Catherine the keys to Sean's car and instruct her to follow them. They all drive out into the middle of nowhere. Sean and Carrie are ordered to get on their knees. They shoot them each in the head. The detective can't remember who poured the gas in, but Caleb tried to light it with his cigarette. The detective can't remember? He says that in his interview. I can't remember who, and I was like, uh... You didn't want to, like, pause the camera and look it up? Uh, Sean never implicated either guy in the shooting. So the rumor about him talking to the police, he never told that other detective a damn thing. So they killed him for no reason. And the re actress has a field day with that. She yeah. just sobs and cries and uses up a whole bottle of glycerin. And after the murders, Caleb described the murder of Carrie as a casualty of war. That's a direct quote. Catherine's statement is consistent with the evidence from the cigarette, but they're eventually able to get Caleb's DNA. So, but, you know, but they just threw it in a box when they found it in the car and waited two weeks before I, they're lucky they're, even yeah. looked at it. I didn't think they would get anything when you hear about it being treated like that. Mm -hmm. So Catherine pleads guilty to one count of second-degree murder. She serves 10 years and is released in 2014. 
Caleb Burns pleads guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and receives two life sentences with no possibility of parole. And Nathaniel York also pleads guilty to two counts of first-degree murder, also receives two life sentences, and during the seventh year of his sentence, he kills himself. So, I have to say, I can remember one other story we did. It was early on. It was a, a People magazine investigates, and props to whatever party person goes out and finds it. It was an Alaska set story where the daughter killed the mother because of a misunderstanding. It was the same feeling, this, like, the murder was not... I mean, you never want to justify murder, but it was a horrible, brutal crime as a result of a, of a lie or a misunderstanding. Like, he wasn't talking to the detective. He wasn't ratting them out. And they killed him and his girlfriend. It was just who disgusting. Who had nothing. He wasn't there and wasn't a witness yeah. and had nothing. Who just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay. Let's talk about the narrative okay. you saw. This is the thing one. Thing one. I'm okay, sorry. I was taking one. a sip of tea. I thought you had more to say. Thing, thing one. Thing one is... I'm going to just say to um, would-be uh, true crime and uh, other crime reporters and uh, promulgators of true crime storytelling, if you're going to call something the killing field, you need to be aware of the near genocidal mm-hmm. uh, massacre of Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of Cambodians during the Pol yeah. Pot. There's a film. It's actually the the Killing Fields is a thing, and it, mm-hmm. it is way worse. I was relieved yeah. by this story. That I mean, I'm sorry for those two children who were murdered senselessly in this stupid story, um, but it does not compare. Yeah. And so, calling something the Killing Fields like. Mm. Not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not really the same as that story. So I was relieved that it was not as horrible, as gruesome, and as blood-soaked as yeah. that just jaw-dropping story yeah. from um, the, the the old days, from the Vietnam War days in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie and the, came out in the 80s, I think. Who I think was so. in the movie? Linda Hunt is in the movie, right? I and, think uh, Linda Hunt was in The Year of Living Dangerously. I'm confusing. Um, but I, I don't remember who yes. was in the movie exactly. I just, I'm not even, I'm sure I saw the movie, but it was about a really horrific political sort of pogrom kind of level, if not genocidal, headed in that direction. Really awful, massacring innocent people um, for political means. So I just, I just thought that was a little overkill, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so to speak. The second thing is, I think taking their lead from Senda Wilson. Mm Mm-hmm. The people making this wanted to make the story that they were wannabe gangsters and listening to the rap music and being mm-hmm. influenced by rap music was setting a bad. Like, I'm not a big fan of glamorizing gangster mm-hmm. culture. I think that's not helpful. And mm-hmm. I think children are impressionable and suggestible. But I do not think that's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And I think that whenever the the narrative drifted from that, mm-hmm. They cut. They just didn't report on it. Right. Like, yeah. there's no explanation for why they fired through the window of that Christmas party, Mm-mm. and so they. But they make it sound like we. They weren't showing us proper respect. Mm-hmm. Like it was some sort of wannabe, um, rich kid, gangsta bullshit. Which I don't think that's what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was probably some stupid, childish, 
anger-based thing right. that caused them to do, to, to do that murder and to kill these kids. But I don't think it was them trying to affect gangsta culture behavior. I think this was, I think that was what, that narrative drove this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it, as a result, we got less of the story than might have been interesting to hear. What did you think was lying outside that narrative that they ignored? Uh, crystal methamphetamine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I think was going on in this story. All of the paranoia, all of the really bad choices, mm-hmm. all of the stupid thing. I think drug use was of some sort, and my guess would be crystal, given the mm-hmm. the the area of the country and the yeah. the more. It wasn't rural, but it was not. Meth has a reputation for being a Western thing. It exploded here before it kind of went back to the East Coast. Yeah, so but it's it definitely yeah. a, it's a big time in the rural kind of culture. Yeah. And I just think wealthy kids, so they probably weren't dealing so much as they were doing it. Mm-hmm. And I just think it created that kind of environment for them. Um, with You know, the, the paranoia, the bad choices, the, the general sort of crazed behavior, because all of this is so... Stupid and mm-hmm. unmotivated. Yeah, nobody was in any sort of um, peril. We don't know what the fight was about the um, at the party, but they were paranoid about something enough to want to yeah. fire a shotgun through the front window of a crowded party. I mean, that's potentially a mass shooting situation. Yeah. That's that. That was why I was saying the thing about the shotgun. That's that is a really extreme yes. choice. That's like firing a machine gun into a party, like. The fact that they didn't hit anybody is a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that they didn't describe it or a, yeah. attempt to explain what was going on there, I think that there was more information there. Caleb was the outside kid who brought this influence into their mm-hmm. environment. And he's, you know, all tattooed and pierced up and whatever and kind of methy looking. But so. and there's just nothing about Caleb. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, the, he's the motivating force for all Absolutely of this. Absolutely no information. And there's almost nothing about him. In fact, they tease something at the very beginning. They do a lot of these shows. They do a sort of clip montage of everything. And they, they reference someone as being, everyone in the area feared him. They, sh- they play that line up front at the episode. And I'm halfway through the episode. I'm like, who are they talking about? It's not Sean, because he's this sweet, funny guy that everybody loves. Yeah, so he was the yeah. meth dealer? I don't know. I have no idea. He was, you know, he was Sean. He was Nate's gay city meth doing boyfriend. I have no idea who Caleb was because they didn't tell us any of that because they were so focused on it's like the um, the satanic panic, right? Right. The children being influenced by that that devil rap music used to say it about rock and roll, you know, like I. I think they've let go of that narrative well, I, now. But I think if anybody questions our partisanship on the issue, they also said it in the special we did about the hate crime murder of Blaze Berenstein in Orange County, who was a gay man who was murdered. That We felt that they overblamed internet web white supremacist forms on the fact that this kid who murdered him was clearly having issues with his own sexuality right. and didn't feel like. So I think you're right. I think that the pollutant effect, the cultural pollutant effect that people like to talk about, it gives the illusion that you're doing something about the problem, but really you're attacking this giant amorphous target that can absorb your attack, by the way. And it's it's like virtue signaling. It makes you look like you're doing something. The thing that I think I always say, and it comes up with violent video games, right? Violent entertainment. 
you have to, if you're going to say that's the factor that caused it, you have to account for the millions upon millions upon millions of people who consumed this media and didn't go out and shoot a bunch of people. Yeah, that's just, I, I yeah. you know, I watched Bugs Bunny and I did all of that stuff and none of those things were regulated and nothing was rated and it was all in, I didn't grow up you, to be you a You do some things as a result murderer. of Bugs Bunny that you and I should talk about later, just some some. But it doesn't things. involve dropping pianos absolutely. on anybody. I totally, you know I mean? absolutely, yes. no. Um, so I think that that I think you're right, and I think that has to do. We encounter. We're, I don't want to say we're getting driven. Yeah, and I don't want to say we're getting bitter about this, but we're getting to a point with our podcast where we've watched enough of these one-hour specials, and there are different tiers of what we talk about on True Crime TV Club. Right? We've done four. We've done longer, more nuanced, in-depth stuff. But really, our bread and butter is like wives with knives and stuff like that. Oh my God! Because it's the thing we love. Right. The but, trashier, but the better. But this is what we love. What are we not seeing? What did they leave out? You know, like we're 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 critiquing the almost creative oh, yeah. decisions that if were I made. Can, if I can at the end of the episode go, oh, well, that was just bullshit. <laughs> I'm in heaven. But we have had conversations with friends who shall remain nameless who have worked on shows like this, who have said, I have gone in to cover a case, to do an hour about this case that an, that I have seen another show's episode of. And the the facts of the case that confronted me bore no resemblance to that other show. Right. They just made it up. And we saw it with the episode, I always blank on the name of it, the straight washing episode, where they just made the victim straight by using reenactments and strip clubs and a fake statement from the prosecuting attorney in court that was completely scripted and had, it was just, they just make shit up with these little specials, you know? And I, I, it concerns me because I think a lot of us watch this to try to figure out who the predators are. You know, I think we, we do look for survival tips you know, and red flags, right? And I think if they're lying to us that much about about what caused the murder, you know, yes. or if they're being that biased, it's sort of like, okay, well, I can't get my survival tips from them. Well, it's the desire to oversimplify. I think it yeah. is. It is very much. I think it is very much a product of the the sorry state of journalism today. Yeah. I think that there is this. I want an easy narrative that I can sell that's going to get me a lot of clicks, and I don't want to do a lot of work yeah. to find it. So I'm just going to dump it into this particular category. I don't think it's a recent development, mm -hmm. but I think it has gotten really with the growth of social media and um, the world of virtue signaling and and sort of 120 character bite-sized storytelling, um, it has become a worse problem. Right. We're just in a place where, oh, well, that's an easy solution. I'll just tell the story that way. And this is, I think, a perfect example of that. We did not find out the story of the tragic murder of these two children because the story that actually happened apparently didn't fit with their, it was that devil rap music, right. wannabe gangsta white kids from wealthy Chicago, uh, Chicago uh, Chicago, Chicago, Colorado, Colorado, su Colorado suburb. Yeah. Um, and so they, they just didn't tell the story. Like mm -hmm. the principal character, one of the people who was convicted of two life sentences for first degree murder. We don't know anything other than his yeah. name. Yeah. That is literally all we know about that character. That's not a reporting on this no. story. No, it isn't. Okay. So, um, 10 years for a young woman who basically watched everything happen, did nothing to stop it, drove a vehicle. I don't think she drove them even. I think she was driving a follow-along vehicle behind them. Yes. Ten years? Do you think that's a justified sentence? Well, she didn't come forward, but yeah. she did 
give them what they needed to get the conviction. So yeah, okay. it seems like a balance, you know, yeah. like you're not not guilty because you saw this hideous crime and didn't go straight to the police. I'm not sure that they wouldn't have said, oh, well, they'll probably be fine. You know how kids are when they're playing yeah. with guns, right. given their reaction to the rest of the crime investigation. But um, she also did come up with what they needed to, you know, she broke the case for them. Yeah. So it's kind of a balance. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that's fair. I yeah. don't know. Like they make deals with people. Sometimes I just am like, okay, that was mm-hmm. still a, somebody who committed the crime, so I'm not really okay with that. But she seemed, that seems like, mm, okay. destroyed. But the suicide, yeah, I think that's telling. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, sobered up and realized what he'd done. Yeah. You know what I mean? That seems really, that's the thing that was really the tip-off for the, this was drug-related. And I think it's, I'm just, I'm distressed by the lack of inclusion that active, drug addict behavior gets in discussions of stories like this. Like, I don't want to excuse a crime because somebody is actively using no. drugs, but I think that is a factor that you need to look at. I think that's one of those red well, flags. Particularly if you're using drugs that cause people to participate in what would be otherwise considered mental, mentally ill behavior. Right. Like, people doing crystal methamphetamines present as though they are schizophrenic. They do, they do. While they are actually using. I'm not saying that to everybody, but, no. like, it is, it can lead you into a psycho- full psychotic break. Yes. That, that would present as mental illness. That will lift. And then you sober up. Exactly. It lifts after a period of detox. Yeah. And this is this is people working in the recovery community here in L.A. who are saying this publicly now because it is a, it's relevant to what we're dealing with with the homelessness crisis here. We have a lot of people who are in full-blown addiction on, street, on the streets who appear to be so mentally far gone they're beyond aid. But if they go through a period of detox and some kind of rehabilitation – they, they, it's like they come out of this fog. And it doesn't take really heavy – like it could just yeah. be, you know, wet brain. They could just be, you know, horrible drunks. Mm-hmm. Like it is possible for people to participate in what might otherwise be considered crazy behavior just because they're under the influence, whatever that is. Yeah. And, you know, it's probably not smoking up a bunch of pot. You'd probably be asleep or – yeah, you know, too lazy to commit a crime. But um, Good people don't smoke marijuana. You know who said that? Lindsey Graham. Jeff Sessions. Close. Jeff Sessions. Other Look, evil elf. Yeah, yes. Other <laughs> yes. Other huge mo. The one who actually got hugely taken down by Donald Trump after yes. he hitched his wagon to him quickly and decisively taken yeah, down. Yeah, boy, that was a that was a favor to us all. Thank you. Out of the Senate and out of our lives. Bye-bye. So uh, we're continuing wintertime crimes. And really taking an interesting turn. I like, will say. It is, it, it's wintertime, though. I have gotten um, jittery about suggesting documentaries that don't come from reliable sources. We had a few early on where it was like somebody's YouTube video we ended up watching. Oh, my God. Talk yes. about crystal meth. Um, <laughs> this was, this was, I watched the trailer. This was an unknown, but the, what I want to say about this is this is an unsolved mystery that we were long overdue to cover, which is the Dyatlov Pass incident in Russia. And I don't want to say anything else about it. A lot of people who are listening probably know about it. It's been fodder for podcasts. A lot of podcasts have done it. We have friends who are obsessed with this incident. Huge conspiracy yeah, theory. Huge multiple conspiracy theories. So the documentary we will be serving up is called An Unknown Compelling Force, and we streamed it here in the United States on Amazon, I believe. 
or we rented it. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Amazon. Yeah, so Apple TV or Amazon, those two are roughly equivalent offer the same things. But it's out there. It's there for you to watch, and we will be serving it up on our next episode. You're making a face like you have something no, to say. No, no. I think it, and I think it's great because we were talking earlier in the episode about we, a lot of our um, listeners are international. So yes. I'm always glad when we can do more international crimes. This took place, you know, far, 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 far from here. This was, uh, I guess, in the far from anything. Yeah, as we will discover. Absolutely, the middle, the definition of the middle of fucking nowhere, like yeah. the Gulag Archipelago, mm. was was more urban than <laughs> this particular setting. But somewhere in the the the, the Urals, yes, right, the, the Ural, Ural Mountains, Mountains of, yes. of Russia. So absolutely. yeah, it's quite a remote area and quite an interesting story. I have to say, I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't either. I didn't either. So next week, until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice, and I'm an unknown compelling force. <laughs> <laughs> And a loud one. A loud but unknown compelling force. Uh, and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.